This Sunday, uh, we are continuing on in our summer series, Psalms for Spiritual Renewal. And last week, Ben did a great job for us preaching on Psalm 40, reminding our hearts how to wait for the Lord and for His deliverance, for God does deliver, and so we proclaim. This week, our psalm similarly is, is weighty, one that involves and invites us to be honest in a world filled with lament and trouble. It's, it's a sobering psalm in many ways, and it invites us to reflect upon ourselves. So what do you do? What do you do when you face human frailty, finiteness, the limits of the human condition? Consider time. When you don't have all the time that you thought you had or maybe that you wish that you had to do something or to be with someone, how do you feel? What do you do when, say, you face the death of a loved one? How do you respond? Do you cry out to God? What do you say? Do you decry God? Do you have a moment where you just feel that everything is meaningless? Do you try to ignore it altogether and move on with your life? After losing his son to a tragic climbing accident, Nicholas Wolterstorff, in his stirring lament for a son, a collective of raw journal entries in the painful days immediately following his loss, writes this in one of his entries. It's a longer quote, but but so rich for us to glean insight for this morning. Listen, listen to this. This is what he writes. Why don't you just scrap this God business, says one of my bitter suffering friends. It's a rotten world. You and I have been shafted, and that's that. He responds, I'm pinned down. When I survey this gigantic, intricate world, I cannot believe that it just came about. I do not mean that I have some good arguments for it being made and that I believe in the arguments. I mean that this conviction wells up within me irresistibly when I contemplate the world. The experiment of trying to abolish it does not work. When looking at the heavens, I cannot manage to believe that they do not declare the glory of God. When looking at the earth, I cannot bring off an attempt to believe that it does not display his handiwork. Think back a couple weeks to Pete's sermon on Psalm 19. Wolterstorff continues on, and when I read the New Testament and look into the material surrounding it, I am convinced that the man, Jesus Christ, was raised from the dead. In that I see the sign that he was more than a prophet. He was the son of God. Faith is a footbridge that you don't know will hold you up over the chasm until you're forced to walk out onto it. I'm standing there now over the chasm. I inspect the bridge. Am I deluded or deceived, foolish, in believing that in God the question shouted out by the wounds of the world has its answer? 
Am I deluded in believing that someday I will know the answer? Am I deluded in believing that once I know the answer, I will see that love has conquered? I cannot dispel the sense of conducting my inspection in the presence of the creating and resurrecting one. Being a psalm of both lament and wisdom set before us this morning, Psalm 90, we're invited to consider wisdom and also its opposite, folly. The opposite of wisdom, folly, let, let me assert this morning, taken from our psalm, leads us to one, deny the existence of God, and two, ignore our own human limitations and weaknesses. More specifically, sin, suffering, inevitable death. From Walter Storr, as he is lamenting the loss of his son, he displays for us true wisdom given him by God. In wrestling with, confronting the suffering and the darkness of this present world, acknowledging it, and all the while acknowledging God's existence, and going a step further, resting in the testimony of the man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Nazareth and the claims of his death and resurrection. While acknowledging his limitations of what he can't understand, Walterstorff also gives insight into faith, going off of what he can see and know and experience, and putting his deepest trust, living in such a way as to depend on the guiding light of truth, even in darkness. And as he says, all this, all this wrestling, is done in the presence of the creating and resurrecting God. As our psalm begins, Psalm 90, God is our dwelling place. Regarding both its structure and its use over the years, the great 19th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon has this to say about Psalm 90. The psalm is called a prayer for the closing petition and the preceding verses are a meditation preparatory for the supplication. Many generations of mourners have listened to this psalm while standing around the open grave and have been consoled thereby, even when they have not perceived its special application to Israel in the wilderness, and have failed to remember the far higher ground which believers now stand. A couple things to note here. First, the original context of the psalm. While hearing what we hear this morning from the psalm, it's helpful to keep in the back of our minds the original context for this prayer of Moses with its application to Israel wandering in the desert wilderness. This gives depth to the unique meditations of the psalm. Secondly, we will use Spurgeon's words here as an outline for our text this morning. Part 1, verses 1 through 11. We'll hear meditations on truth from God's word. Part 2, verses 12 through 17. In response to part 1, we'll hear the prayers of supplication. This communal prayer, Psalm 90, opens with meditations on reality. Namely, who God is and who we are in light of this fallen world. 
I invite you sometime today, uh, pending weather, or, or sometime this week to sit down, preferably outside, under a tree, and open up the book of Genesis, and to meditate on the first three chapters of that book. In many ways, these first several verses of Psalm 90 are, are just that, meditations on the truths that we learn from the beginning of our Bible, the beginning of Genesis. These are precious chapters, so important for us for understanding how we live as Christians. In the beginning, God. God created. We learn who God is as creator from the first verses of the scriptures. And that before anything else was made, he was. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God the psalmist writes in verse 2 of our psalm. Here the psalmist acknowledges that God has formed the earth, the world, and all that we see from the beauty of creation. Just picture the towering mountains. We can see the creator, his eternal power, and his divine nature. One of the most important distinctions for the Christian is exactly this, the divide between creator and creature. And as creator, God is eternal, without beginning, without end, from everlasting to everlasting. The psalm will go on in light of this to dwell on us, our nature as creatures. Before that, remember how the psalm begins. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. As we'll read on, this is truly astonishing. The Pentateuch featuring Moses. The first five books of the Bible describes God's heart to be near, to dwell with his people. But there's a problem. And we call that problem sin. Unless we make light of sin, books such as Leviticus show us what is required, the lengths that God goes given his holiness to dwell amongst a sinful and rebellious people. The tabernacle, the tent of the congregation, was the earthly dwelling place of creator God during the years of travel for Israel in the wilderness. But that is no longer the dwelling place of God for us today. As one commentator notes on this set of verses, he says, within this panorama of time and eternity, we have a fixed address. He has proved himself to be our dwelling place. United with him, we enjoy permanence. With what feeling Moses could and would have said this, more on this uh, remarkable statement later, but, but today, how much more can we say this with feeling? God's dwelling place is, astonishingly, with his very people dwelling in them, with his spirit. So 
in a sense, a paradox we have. How could God, knowing who he is as creator, as eternal, how could, how could he be our guidepost? How could we be united with him in such a way? Well, we must begin here to fully understand grace. After meditating on God, in the first two verses, the psalm leads us to consider our human condition. You return man to dust and say, return, O child of man. These words echo from Genesis chapter 3. God confronting Adam in the garden after their sin. And into reality, death enters as a result of their sin. It wasn't always supposed to be this way. This episode, this chapter in Genesis, shapes the reflections of the next few verses of this psalm. God is eternal, as we have heard and we hear again in verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but a yesterday when it is past. And yet, our days are limited. Consider these illustrations from the psalmist to describe the days of humanity. A watch in the night, a flood. A dream, grass, like grass that is renewed in the morning, says the psalmist. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. Maybe this picture is a little bit close to home for many of us who are trying to grow grass lawns in the heat of summer. But here, as in everywhere, the theme of this psalm is present, time. Our limited condition as humans, an inevitable death. All juxtaposed with God and his eternal power and divine nature. The next section of verses through verse 11 is a meditation on the result of Genesis 3, fallen humanity. The wages of sin, of toil, and of death. But we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence and in your clearness. Moses is not one to shy away from the true state of things. Why we are here, acknowledging the presence and consequences of sin. Sin must be dealt with. First began with Adam and Eve as they were expelled from the garden, God's dwelling place. Toil, trouble, broken relationships, sojourning in barren lands, and death resulted. But even through these verses, remember verse 1. Consider Moses and his state, wandering with Israel in the desert wilderness, Prevented from entering into the rest of the fertile promised land. To capture a bit of his emotional state, hear words from verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Or we finish our years with a moan. A sad statement, to say the least. He goes on. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. 
Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly home. Our time is limited, our strength limited. Our days are filled with toil and trouble. And then they're gone. If nothing else, may this psalm invite you to be honest about the hardships, the sorrows, the dark days of life. This psalm gives us language for exactly that, to pray back to God in honesty. But almost never, almost never do the psalms leave us there. And neither does this psalm this morning. Now, it's, it's come up a couple times already, the dreaded word, wrath. So we mustn't overlook it. Here again, verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Simply put, wrath is God's anger towards sin. A helpful resource the New, New Dictionary of Biblical Theology defines wrath in, in this way. God's, God's wrath is viewed as a judicial expression of holiness, repudiating unholiness as it must. God's wrath is retributive, reestablishing righteousness where unrighteousness was before, so vindicating God's goodness. Sin must be dealt with as Moses is well aware of, and, and so should we too. Our sin and guilt are real, and they must be dealt with. And this is our deepest need and longing. And for those who do dwell, who do dwell in God, this is what the work of a Christ accomplishes on your behalf. Christ's work will return later, though the more we understand the pervasiveness of our own sin, the more we understand the richness of God's mercy and goodness, the goodness of his grace in Christ. So this, let this conclude the first part of our prayer, meditating on the truth of God and man and, and sorrow and death from God's word. So now we turn to part two, prayers of supplication in response. And as we reach this, this pivot point in the psalm, I think it's helpful to highlight and reiterate how both the content and the structure of this psalm help us pattern our personal spiritual disciplines after, for both Bible intake and our life of prayer, to find rest and renewal. St. Augustine, who famously said in his autobiographical writings from the late 4th century, his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. He gives us insight on how we find rest in God, and, and particularly how the Psalms are vital to that end. The time immediately following Augustine's conversion to Christianity was a time, as, as James K. Smith recounts, for intensive language learning. 
for giving himself over to the Psalms. The episode illustrates how this language was a gift that he could also make his own. In the Psalms, God gave him words that he could speak back to God. These songs, he said, were a school for his passions. The words I poured out to you, my God, when I read the Psalms of David, those faithful songs, the sounds of godliness that shut out the spirit that's full of itself. I was the unschooled, I was unschooled in true passion for you, Augustine says. The curriculum of psalm singing was like a a burlesque program for the soul, training his affections by giving him new words, a new cadence of aspirations, a new story to live in. Our psalm this morning models this really well for us. We read, we hear, we study, we meditate on Scripture and the truth of God's Word, which we see done here in verses 1 through 11, on the beginning truths of Scripture. Moses, Moses knew what story he was living in. And now, here, as we'll see in verses 12, 17, we pray and we speak back to God after meditating on his word. We respond to God in prayer. Beginning in verse 12 to the end of this section is a prayer uniquely in the form of supplication. Supplication meaning asking earnestly or even begging for something humbly. We have several prayers for supplication in these next verses for wisdom for mercy, for gladness, glory, and favor in work. All keenly practical for daily living. And to whom are these words addressed? These requests directed to? Indeed, to the Lord our God, the one who brought forth the mountains and formed the earth, the one who is everlasting to everlasting, and holds our lives in his hands. Verse 12 is seen by many as the heart of this psalm. In response to the meditations on the limits of our human condition, Moses prays, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. A few things we are to glean from this. First, the Lord is our teacher. We are in need of being taught. And we forget, and we forget, and we forget. And so we're in need of being reminded. God in his word teaches us and reminds us. Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of Wisdom. Secondly, what is, what is wisdom? Well, first, we should reiterate that implicitly, given the nature of this, this is a prayer and a prayer directed to God. The psalmist is acknowledging the existence of God and asking him after wrestling with his reality. The fear of the Lord, as the proverb says, the beginning of wisdom. Then also, to get a heart of wisdom, we are plainly instructed. We are to number our days. What is this significance? 
And we acknowledge our days are numbered. We acknowledge our finiteness, our weakness, our limitations. This is wisdom. For when we confess our weakness, God is pleased to be our help and to show us his mercy. And in the very next verse, this is where the prayer naturally leads to, but before turning there, more is to be understood regarding Moses' model prayer for the Christian life in relationship to time and death. D.A. Carson says this, In Psalm 90, we see that as Moses stares at death, he thinks through its relation to life, to sin, to God, and strives to understand what death means. And then he asks for wisdom to live his life in light of that death. He would have utterly scorned the modern mood that wants to live life as if death were not there waiting for us at the end. Moses wants us to number our days. That is, to recognize the limit that is imposed on us and to live with the limit in full view. Only in this way can we gain a heart of wisdom. Rather than trying, as so often our culture does, to, to sanitize, to scrub clean, to put a shiny artificial veneer over the hard things of life, and over the reality of death, let the church stand apart. Let Psalm 90 guide us this morning that we might gain wisdom. You know, music is an important part of my life, and, and the hymn book has grown to be a treasure for me as I get older. It's important. It's important the songs that the church sings week in and, and week out, and I take that uh, responsibility seriously in my role at GLC. Many of these lyrics will be stuck with us for the rest of our lives, Lord willing, which God can use and does call to mind and use in unique circumstances that come our way, often difficult ones. We can learn much from the old hymns and how they face death and suffering straight on, much like the Psalms. Kevin Twitt, when speaking on music ministry, commented on how hymns should teach us to die well. That what he looks for in hymns is how they prepare his students for their encounter with death. What a criterion for your songbook. Do the hymns you sing help you die well? There's no shortage of such hymns. Take the great Isaac Watts, for example. His setting of Psalm 3 Appropriate for Moses' meditation here, calling to mind Genesis chapter 3. Arise, O Lord, fulfill thy grace. While I thy glory sing, may God, my God, has broken the serpent's teeth, and death has lost its sting. Salvation to the Lord belongs, his arm alone can save. Blessings attend thy people here and reach beyond the grave. Christian is shaped by singing such words. And such training is not just seen in the songs of the church. The Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, which has been instructing Christians ever since, begins with this question. 
What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong both body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Goes on to say, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This comfort, which allows you to stare death in the face, has the power to change the way you live the rest of your life. May we both, young and old, by gospel life, prepare to die well, knowing that we belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Moses' second prayer, supplication, is this, verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. What is this but a cry for mercy? How long, O Lord, must we endure? How long, O Lord, before you return and make everything right? This is a common refrain in prayers of lament. In the suffering and the sorrow that we experience, we cry out to God for mercy. We'll dwell less on these other few prayers for time's sake, but they are worthy of your own meditation and private devotion. Satisfy us in the morning, verse 14, with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. And very similarly, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. We pray for gladness, for goodness, for God's steadfast love. One commentator remarks, God's kindness has the power to move human joy beyond the fleeting framework of a few hours to all our days. May God renew us with his kindness. He gives us sustaining gladness, joy not beholden to the circumstances that are around us. May the joy of the Lord be our strength. In the penultimate verse of the psalm, we pray with Moses and all God's people, let your work, God, let the good news of Jesus be shown, declared, proclaimed to all. May it be passed on to your children and their children throughout all generations. And we pray in thanksgiving that it has been, that we have been recipients of this great heritage from the family of faith, of saints who have gone before us, who have gone since gone and are now in the great cloud of witnesses in the heavens as we run to finish this race. Finally, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Here's our last prayer supplication. And it has to do with work. Work is good. Work is important. Your work is good and important. Is it filled with toil, this side of glory? 
Yes. But as Robert Alter puts it, against the dismaying ephemerality of human existence in which a life sprouts and withers like grass, God can give fleeting human experience solid substantiality. We are invited into God's redemptive work taste eternal life here and now. You know, these, these prayers and meditations from Psalm 90, God has, has been teaching me many in this recent season of my life and, and has led me uh, to pray these prayers. Um, you know, losing my son Owen to stillbirth last year really pressed upon me. I don't know why. I don't know why. God numbered his days the way he did. Don't know why he numbered my days the way he did. But I rest and trust that, as the Apostle Paul says, these verses have been so crucial to me in this season. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I trust that my son is in the Lord's presence today. And with the time that God has given me on earth, these days that he has numbered me, through meditating on these verses, God has shown and shaped me to live, to, to number my days, to pray that the Lord would establish the work of my hands, and to trust that the life that I live in the flesh, as Paul says, means fruitful labor for me. And may it be so of all of us, too, with the time that the Lord has given us. As we conclude here, the reminder to steal Spurgeon's phrase that we see the higher ground on which we now stand compared to Moses and his praying of Psalm 90. We have the vantage point in history to look back that Christ the Messiah has come. And in Christ, what our hearts most long for, love truly does conquer the grave. God's grace is so good. In Christ, we don't, we don't need to fear death. We can confront death and with Paul proclaim where death is your victor. Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you who put your trust in the risen one, Jesus. God, who raised Jesus from the dead, will also give life in your mortal bodies through his Spirit lives in you. Brothers and sisters, what great hope we have. As the great hymn goes, soul then know thy full salvation. Rise over sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus Die to win thee, child of heaven, and thou repine. Repine being a bit of an arcane word meaning fret. Not even death 
Do we any longer fret? Countless stories of Christians can be told of staring death in the face and yet rejoicing, trusting, knowing that this life is not all that there is. Glory is to come and we will be home with our King. Do we need to fret over death? No. Do we still mourn over the loss of life? Yes, we do. Tears are still much needed for the Christian. Even though we know that the day is coming when every tear will be wiped away. And so, let us draw to a close here. And as Sally Lloyd-Jones so beautifully paraphrases, look, behold, God and his children together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying. Because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I've wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, Look, I am making everything new. Jesus is that king. And it's simply by grace that we get to enter into enjoy the goodness of his kingdom. For those who are listening this morning who might not yet be Christians, hear this. Trusting in Christ won't make your life necessarily easier. But he is good. Don't trust in Christ because he will make your life easier. Probably be disappointed. But trust in Christ because he is good. He's trustworthy. See for yourself. He knows your weaknesses and will walk with you every step of the way. And laying down his own life for you gives you solid footing on which to stand. Though you stumble, and you will stumble, you will not fall. For he will uphold you with his right for the Christian. An invitation for you this morning. Which one of these prayers do you need to remind yourself of that God in Christ is your dwelling place? You belong to him in body and in soul and life and in death. So turn to God today. Acknowledge your weakness and know his mercy. Lord Jesus, God from everlasting to everlasting, who became mortal, a child of man, born of woman, we thank you that you came for the work which you were called to drink the cup of wrath for us so that we don't have to. Let your name and your work be shown to us and our children in every generation. Teach us, O Lord. Give us wisdom, show us mercy, and help us cling firmly and trust deeply in the saving work of your Son for us, sinners, sufferers. Satisfy us with your steadfast love. In Jesus' precious name we pray.